Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week. Going to guide you gently through another show, but this isn't just another show because we're back in the office, listeners. Yes, we are. After 18 months, we're doing a podcast from the office, although myself and Frank are in separate rooms because we couldn't work out the echo, but uh, it's very exciting. So um, Mike Valdez-Foley is our guest, the president and CEO of Pinter. Very special guest, Mike, our first one back in the office after 18 months. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to uh, to participate in general, but even more so to celebrate a return to some semblance of normalcy. Yes, absolutely. It's been a, a very weird week, I, I can tell you. Just It's amazing how you forget, you know, how to do things like, you know, getting on a subway and talking to people and all that stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, and we got Frank Washcook with us, who's our uh, executive editor. Frank, you enjoying it back in the office? I'm having a blast. I've been here every day this week. I am, you have. Uh, I'm enjoying, um, I'm just kind of enjoying not working from home. Uh, yes. It's uh it's a nice alternative to have choices of uh, where you want to work. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're not at capacity here. That's uh, true. That's, that's so it's an uh, understatement of the, uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's some peace and quiet and um, it's like the whole place is your private office sometimes. So you can work yeah. wherever you want. So it's nice. I can, uh, I can empathize. So at Pinta, even though we, as everyone did shut down for a year or so, um, I came into the office, every single day sitting all by my lonesome because if I'm paying the landlord, I wanted to get out of the house and at least take advantage of the most miserable check I was writing every month. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Every day. That is, uh, that's commitment. That is commitment. So, uh, so we're going to talk to Mike and then we'll chat and lots to talk about this week. We've uh, launched our bellwether survey, the communications bellwether survey, the biggest um, review of the industry. Fascinating uh, report this year. The Hall of Fame class of 2021 has been announced, so we'll talk about them. It's Hispanic Heritage Month started this week, so we'll uh, check in on that and talk about a few pieces of content that we made live this week, our newsmaker interview with General Motors' Craig Buckholtz and um, a CMO feature on Carrie Walsh at Subway, all interesting stuff. And we'll find out why McDonald's social listening tools struggle to keep up with BTS. So all the good stuff on the podcast this week. But we'll talk to Mike first. So, Mike, tell us a bit about Pinta. For those who don't know the agency, you're based down in Miami, um, Hispanic market specialist. But um, that's a really involving market, isn't it? So tell us a bit about Pinta. Sure. Thanks again. Uh, yeah, Pinta's been around since 2014 when I launched it. Uh, as a spinoff from a, a firm many of your listeners would know called Jeffrey Group. I had been the president of Jeffrey Group for a few years, and um, but my passion sort of lies in the in the U.S. multicultural, specifically Latino space. And uh, with that in mind, uh, you know, decided to kind of spin off that practice and create a, an individual LLC. And it's been a wonderful ride since then. We are we're proud to currently work with uh, a wide range of, of clients, including. Uh, Comcast, Heineken, Microsoft, NFL, T-Mobile, and Western Union. Uh, and our specialty is, uh, you know, kind of full service, but below the line. So for sure, the PR and comms 
but in addition to that, a, a robust digital, social, and influencer practice. Um, but we try to not be all things to all people and, and really just laser focus on the U.S. Hispanic market. We don't do any Latin America nor any Anglo general market, but within the confines of that niche, we, we consider ourselves hopefully one of the leaders. Yeah, and you say niche, but uh, it's becoming more than a niche, isn't it? It's a $1.5 trillion market and quickly becoming mainstream. So talk a little bit about that, how the, the general market has evolved, you know, over the years that you've been working in the industry. Yeah, it's a great question, and it, you know, it's it's always a fun one to answer right after the census results come yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the the figures are are jaw dropping in all the in all the best ways. So just in sheer size, the Hispanic uh, market is about 62 million people, representing nearly 19 percent of the total. So that's one in five Americans. And if it were a standalone country, that would be the second largest Spanish speaking country on earth. Meaning. U.S. Hispanic is bigger than all of Spain or all of Argentina or all of Colombia, second only to, to Mexico, of course. So, yes, the, it's not, not such a niche anymore. And more important than that, it has uh, had a fascinating trajectory of rather than assimilation, meaning like other immigrant groups that came before becoming uh, sort of lost in the broader American diaspora. In this case, I like to think the Hispanic community has impacted the broader culture. You need look no further than my client NFL's halftime show a couple of years ago uh, with Shakira and JLo. Uh, for the last two years running, the number one streamed artist on Spotify was a Latin artist. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the stats that is tried and true uh, is that uh, salsa outsells ketchup and tortillas white bread. So, you know, across any sector or vertical, Hispanic is thriving and in many cases impacting the broader American uh, culture. Yeah, for sure. Who's the who's that top artist then? Is that Bad Bunny? Or was it? Yeah, it was uh, Bad Bunny one year and uh, Sean Mendez. I want to say the the year right. prior. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but you know, it's, it's, it is mainstream culture, isn't it? it? It sure is. It sure is. The trick is how do you, you know, leverage the um, cultural insights for this community on behalf of your clients, even when language is not the predominant differentiator. So even 10 years ago, if you're doing U.S. Hispanic, you were adapting and translating things quite often. But now for the second and third generation, uh, like myself, I'm, I'm uh, half Cuban, a quarter Mexican and a quarter American, but born here in Miami. Uh, we are often you know, speaking more English and Spanish, but we are still going to react favorably to brands that communicate with uh, insights rather than stereotypes about our culture. So we've moved beyond just translating that ad into Spanish, which which always Thankfully. was a little bit clunky, wasn't it? Thankfully, yes, we have we have begun to move past it, and um, you know I think it's a win win for everyone when you do so. You're respecting the market rather than condescending. Uh, consumers are are getting uh, access to products and services they otherwise might not have heard of, and of course, corporate America is is making money, which is what you know at the end of the day, uh, corporate America wants to do. So it's, it's done properly. Engaging the Hispanic market is not about a box to check, but rather a revenue driver. Yeah, I've definitely noticed uh, Spanish language advertising during, you know, what you might call general market occasions like uh, sports, you know, soccer um, or, or even awards shows. So, yeah, uh, but we did a, an analysis piece. Our Sabrina Sanchez did a piece uh, looking at the evolution of the specialist agency sector, Um in your area. And one of the trends that seemed to come out was that 
um, uh, much of the communication was more heading towards English speaking versus Spanish. And when, um, we know that a lot of um, Latinos still speak Spanish at home and obviously with the family, but obviously they're, they're completely fluent in English in in other areas of their lives. So tell, talk a little bit about that and what trends you're seeing there. Is it is more of your work in English than it was before? I would say it's both. It's a great question, and, and the answer is, is complex. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief, but basically it's neither all Spanish nor a rapid shift the other direction. Spanish remains sticky. Um, for one thing, there's still first-generation immigrants coming to the United States every year, and uh, they're you know speaking predominantly Spanish. For another, a lot of uh, things make this immigration group different than, than others. Technology like WhatsApp allows immigrants to communicate back home to loved ones in Spanish. Outlets like Univision and Telemundo provide a 24-7 stream of Spanish uh, content uh, in a way that you're not getting Italian TV for Italian immigrants or, or Irish TV for Irish immigrants from the turn of the past century. This is a very specialized kind of situation. So. Spanish remains sticky. That said, uh, we're also seeing a huge growth in uh, that second and third generation Gen Z kind of English dominant bilennial um, market. And that's really fascinating. Just for a client like Heineken, if I may illuminate this a bit, uh, for Heineken, we are communicating predominantly in the East Coast to Caribbean Hispanics in English. But for their sister brand, also owned by Heineken, Tecate, we are communicating predominantly on the West Coast to first-generation immigrants, all in Spanish. Those are both beers, both targeting American, you know, residents, and taking completely different uh, tacks with our help. Yeah, that's um, it's a good point because the community is not one like any other community. It's not one big group, is it? There are many, many different backgrounds and countries of origin. So you've got eighteen, nineteen countries represented there and and all with different you know cultures and and views on the world so what do you say to those who think we should look at the hispanic market as one big block and it should act more together whether that's politically or in terms of socially culturally versus targeting different elements of the community like you're doing with uh, heineken yeah so we we as a marketer uh, and hopefully a strategist on behalf of our clients we absolutely have to segment and uh like you said, the, the concept of the Hispanic market is a misnomer. It's not one homogenous group. It's a series of sub-segments from different countries of origin. Uh, you know, Mexico used to represent 70% of the U.S. Hispanic population only a decade ago. Now it's down to around 61%. Um, so different countries of origin, different ages, different acculturation levels, um, and, and different passion points. So for sure we need to segment. On the broader political component of what you asked, I do think that there are ties that bind Latinos uh, across all of those differences, and it would behoove us in these times to uh, align our efforts and um, make you know advocacy a bit easier if we're speaking with one voice. I actually think the African-American community has been uh, masterful about this. Unfortunately, they've had to. The inequities that have um, existed there and the prejudice that unfortunately still continues has made it necessary for them to advocate with a strong voice, and they have. And I think when something needs to be heard, the microphone can be quite loud because they speak with one voice. And perhaps to our detriment, uh, Latinos have not been quite as good at that, but I think hopefully we're, we're going to get better. 
Yeah, um, if you think Black Lives Matter, you think Stop Asian Hate, it's difficult to think of a, a, a Latino-Hispanic um, comparison there, isn't it? And do you think that, uh, do you think that, what, I mean, you can't or you can't plan something like that either because they're movements in, you know, against, um, uh, you know, egregious situations. But do you think the, I mean, the Hispanic community, for example, was much more impacted by COVID, wasn't it? You know, so... Yep, I think, um, and I'm not in any way downplaying the severity of, of, of the inequities and injustice against the Asian and African American communities, but unfortunately we faced our own. Children being torn apart and separated at the border, uh, migrant detention centers where human rights are in dire, uh, you know, need, and, um, and yet we've never, you know, been able to galvanize a movement like that. And I think one of the reasons is, uh, are there undisputed uh, leaders that can speak with that one voice. So Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson being obvious examples, when there's an injustice, they're on the ground, literally and figuratively with a big microphone and uh, and sort of rallying the troops. And we've never really had a, a, a single kind of, or even a, a group of leaders that can speak for Mexicans and Cubans uh, on all coasts. So um, I'm hopeful that we're moving in that direction, but I do think it's needed. Yeah, and of course there's some crossover with the black with Black Lives Matter in that you know a, a segment of the Hispanic Latino community is black is black and and you know I guess comes yep. on. So is, is, there's no I, I hesitate to say it isn't black and white, but you know uh, you get yep. what I'm, you get my drift. Um, I finally, uh, one of the things Sabrina was looking at in that piece was the ownership structures of different uh, agencies. We've seen some say stay resolutely independent, like Bowdoin. We've seen others like um, Republica and Formula join one of the big holding companies, Havas. We've seen uh, Axis actually leave the holding company. It used to be part of IPG and then went um, independent. You've chosen an interest, interesting route in that you're kind of joined up with a, a larger group, Chemistry, which is an advertising and marketing group. But they're more of an independent group, aren't they? So, and they're now sort of you're fully owned, you're fully owned by them. Tell us why you went down that route rather than, rather than some of the other options. I Honestly, I couldn't have framed it better myself in the way that you set that up because I think it was a false choice. As, a, as an agency owner, your number one goal is to, is to hopefully you know, build a nice culture, inspire your employees and make money. Um, but, but everyone in the back of their mind is thinking, am I building a valuable asset to potentially exit one day? And the only options that, you know, are normally on the table are remain independent or sell to WPP, IPG, Omnicom, Havas, uh, et cetera. And I, I vehemently was opposed to ever even considering that. I just don't like the model in terms of perhaps undervaluing the asset. Uh, you remain on an earnout, And if you're lucky, uh, and they don't kick you to the curb at the end of the year now, maybe you're a middle management employee at that point. None of that appeals to, to me. And, uh, and yet in this world uh, where scale has become increasingly important, where mad men is becoming a bit math men, uh, and you know the, the thought of competing as the um, little engine that could uh, forever is less and less appealing as well. So I, I'm thrilled to have found a middle ground, a hybrid of, uh, of hitching my wagon to uh, a much larger group, uh, chemistry, uh, just one small agency of the year from AdAge. Um, and so they're a very hot shop, more advertising than PR, about 160 employees providing uh, Pinta the scale we need for a robust production shoot or 
the digital software and analytics that clients are increasingly demanding. Yet I sit here today remaining independent and I'm playing a role broadly at chemistry. That's not something that would have been afforded normally uh, in the holding company structure. So I'm very pleased with the way things turned out. Yeah, it's an interesting model and uh, certainly understand why you went that route. Um, yeah, great to chat, Mike, and we'll get your input on the new stories as we go through them. Frank, um, our bellwether survey, the communications bellwether survey, the fourth year of the report, we produce it with Boston University, great partners. It's, be- it's become the most credible overview of the sector. So tell us about some of the findings from this year. Yeah, and great to see some comments from old friend uh, Ray Kotcher, the former CEO of Ketchum as well. Um, I think the bottom line from this survey is that a lot of work that agencies have done over the past year has been all about culture. And it's been about reinforcing uh, the culture that companies already have or making changes so that they can adjust better uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the the challenges that, that companies went through. Uh, in 2020 and early 2021, and, and not just COVID-19, but also the increased importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in corporations after the murder of George Floyd. Um, and, and agencies played a big role in that. And I think a silver lining to the pandemic is is that agencies really had an opportunity to show their value. And corporate comms departments had an opportunity to show uh, what value they, they bring to the organization at large. Um, so just, just a few numbers from the report. 65% of the participants said the pandemic uh, changed their culture and nearly 60% uh, said the PR function played an important role in managing corporate culture. I'm, I'm actually surprised that 60% number was higher just by uh, from the people you talk to out there and you, you hear about all the work they've done and everything they've contributed and, and just how much the CEO and other C-suite people have leaned on them over the past year. Uh, just a few more. So 41% of participants said they spent more time, quote unquote, reinforcing existing corporate culture, uh, working to preserve an office culture in a remote setting, for instance, and others were redefining uh, an existing corporate culture. That's 47%. Um, and again, from just from talking to folks out in the field, I mean, this is something you hear a lot about, you know, taking the things that worked from the, the in-office, everybody-together culture and applying them as much as you can to people working from home, but also making adjustments, um, you know, whether it's wellness communications and checking in with your employees to make sure they're, they're, uh, they're doing well while they're working. Adjusting yeah, all of those things to uh, to the work from home world and everything happening out there. Yeah, it's a fascinating report. If you look at it, it's sort of in the context over the past two years. In 2019, the report was talking about the C-suite dinosaurs kind of holding back the comms departments and you know who were itching to do more. And then in 2020, it was all about agility and responding to the pandemic and how comms jumped in on so many levels for employee engagement, internal comms, crisis, corporate reputation, customer, looking after customers. And now this old cliche about getting that seat at the table, it, it, PR has that seat and they are relied upon by C-suite CEOs. And they really are now, it's up to them to deliver. So that brings with it extra pressures in that, yeah, well, you, you've got that seat, but now you've got to deliver on it. But it, it really did show positive signs for the industry. And um, uh, especially with in, in, around the subject of purpose, you know, where um, 
if we, we a lot of the data is in, on a scale from one to five, with five being the strongest. And people were asked about strategic purpose and how important that was. And that came out at 4.2 on that scale. Whereas if you talk about making statements on social issues, that was down at 2.9. So that was interesting to see. Mike, what did, did the report tally with what you're seeing with your clients and what you're seeing generally in the industry? Absolutely, it did. And I, I think the, the points that you made, I, I would concur. Mainly just I, I view this industry as cyclical, not unlike others. And in times of stability, uh, like it or not, I feel that the CCO role and communications in general are unfortunately undervalued. And when things are all about uh, you know, price points and location and uh, unique selling proposition versus the competition, then uh, PR takes a backseat to marketing and advertising. When things are about issues management, crisis, and fundamental societal change, we are tapped and hugely relied upon to guide uh, CEOs through that. And of course, the last couple of years uh, couldn't have epitomized that more. You had racial inequity coming to the fore with, with Black Lives Matter. You had, um, you know, if you go back even a, a year or two before that, uh, the understandable uh, rage against, uh, you know, male against female issues with the Me Too movement. You had the pandemic, which was not only a health crisis, but then how do companies return to work with safety protocols? All of those dicey issues require a deft touch from a communications professional. And I think for those reasons, we're seeing more influence. Yeah, I think um, one thing that may be different, and I, I guess I hope will be for the industry, is that COVID is kind of one of those fundamental uh, occurrences that changes things forever, doesn't it? And Lisa Osborne Ross from Edelman, the US CEO, was quoted saying this: she thinks it's changed forever and that the, the value of the CCO will now be appreciated a lot more from now on. But that, but. The other elements that came out that, that, that caught my eye was that truly integrated, and this speaks to where you're heading as an agency, Mike, truly integrated functions were performing much better. Um, so where marketing and PR are working closely together in lockstep, they're performing much better, and they're also doing much better on purpose. So I, I think that was interesting to, to note. And the fact that um, in-house departments are still lagging a bit on technology the data that you were talking about, and uh, they need help from their agencies who are leading them on that. But the, the in-house departments are still sort of playing a little bit of catch-up on that. So loads of loads of great trends. Uh, I really recommend you check out the report, but then have a look at the premium edition because that's got so much more analysis, deep dives on uh, technology, on diversity, on purpose, on the interaction between communications and marketing and loads of data. So do check that out. But uh, it's become the de facto survey of the industry. And thank you to our partners at BU for helping us uh, make it so um, really fascinating stuff. Now, one of the uh, things we do each year, and which I love, is the Hall of Fame, where we induct six individuals into our, uh, our Hall of Fame. And we've just announced the class of 2021. And it's always one of my most fun uh, events of the year, and hopefully this year we're going to be able to do it in person. But Frank, talk us through the 2021 recipients. It is always a, a really impressive class, and this year is uh, is no exception. Um, I, I think anybody who uh, has ever met Hanno Cabrera in this industry knows he's a they're really impressive guy with a career that um, 
includes working in Iraq in 2005. Uh, he has been a, a communications a, a communications executive, a strategist for the Democratic Party for the Gore-Lieberman campaign in 2000. Uh, he's been in his current role in General Mills since uh, since 2019 and was at McDonald's before that. You know, a real kind of who's who list of companies and organizations that he has work with across sectors and uh would also highlight great to see fred cook on the list um worked at golan for 35 years and was the ceo for a number of years i wonder if he still has that golan tattoo he got a couple of years ago i guess we'll have to ask him we're going to see him for the hall of fame event and uh, hopefully we'll see him for that but he did write that famous book yeah. didn't he the uh, unconventional ceo he said he's had a non-traditional background hasn't he he's, he's That's a right. cabin boy a barman he's yes interesting jobs that he brought into it so he has he has and that, that was a terrific read when when he wrote that he's living in la now he's moved moved away from chicago i kind of feel uh, that's yeah. where he belongs don't you he's got that sort of la vibe going on yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Um, Joe Evangelisti, who was on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and our listeners got to hear from, he's also on the list. And Michelle Flowers Welch, uh, who's an award-winning expert uh, in multicultural communications and leads one of the country's top specialist integrated marketing uh, agencies. She has a great cr- uh, client list: McDonald's, Nielsen, Honda, Jack Daniels, Nike. Uh, so another list of really impressive individuals. Uh, like you said, hopefully we'll get to see him in person this year. Yeah, not forgetting Karen Khan at HP. Yes. Barbie Siegel, fearless CEO. So um, great group. Really um, looking forward to celebrating them and celebrating the industry. And if we do it in person, we'll, we'll try and celebrate last year's honorary. So we had to do that virtually. So um, should be a good night. Um what do you think, Mike? Did we pick well? Absolutely. There were certainly people that were um, deserving solely on the merits of their career, but it was nice to see such diversity, um, you know, from, from the group. Uh, had a chance to collaborate with many of them, including sharing a few clients with Zeno uh, Group at the moment, which, uh, which Barbie has really uh, taken up like a rocket ship since she uh, took over the CEO role. So, uh, no, I thought it was a great, great list. Good stuff, yeah. Well, we will hopefully be able to celebrate that later in the year. 30th of November is the uh, date for the event. Um, it's Hispanic Heritage Month, Frank. So tell us all about that and what's been going on and uh, what what brands are doing to sort of uh, get involved. Uh, let me highlight um, some of the recent research that came out from uh, the Edelman Trust Barometer um, on brands uh, working with the Hispanic market and and marketing their products to the Hispanic market. And a lot of the things that Edelman has been recommending in these reports, um, they really show up even bigger when when marketing a product to the Hispanic market. So uh, the Hispanic population tends to trust government by more than 23%, more than than, uh, media sources, business by more than 10%. And NGOs also by 10% more than media sources. So, I mean, this this also goes with the other research they have done. Uh, and nearly three in four Hispanic consumers believe it's more important for them to be able to trust the brands they buy from or use today than in the past. And that's higher than the general population. Um, so clearly, there, there's an impetus here to, for 
to put it in really simple terms for brands to do the right thing, to be authentic and trustworthy, to advocate for, uh, for good causes, uh, even, even take political stands uh, when the timing is right. Um, so I, I, this was a really interesting report to read. 54% of Hispanic Americans believe they have a bigger influence on social issues through which brands they choose rather than who they vote for. And that's compared to 44% of black respondents, 40% of Asian respondents, and 38% of white respondents. And they're all, Hispanic consumers are also the most likely to start or stop using a brand because of its response to, say, protests or uh, systemic racism, calls for racial justice and things like that. And that's 12% higher than the general population. So some really good insight uh, from this report. And we have our eye on what brands are going to be doing uh, to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month uh, through mid-October. So if you have any campaigns related to that, send them our way. Yeah, that was one of the reasons we did that piece on the uh, Latino agency sectors. Uh, Mike, how important are these months, um, you know, that you've got... Uh, different months throughout the year and it's important not to just think about these things during one month of the year but they, it is a great opportunity to highlight things isn't it it is and i think you you hit the nail on the head it's not uh if you activate something during hispanic heritage month if you choose to uh commemorate the contributions of hispanics uh but but how and uh you know the first thing is it should be an ongoing commitment that perhaps spikes during Hispanic Heritage Month, but is not the only time of the year when you're paying attention to that uh, booming demographic that, as I said earlier, is one in five Americans. Um, the other thing is, you know, kind of uh, being authentic and organic, which uh, Frank was just alluding to, that, you know, if you just put a, a Mexican flag on something or translate, you know, your message, uh, it's, it's going to do more harm than good. So it should be something that is either informative or entertaining and is in many ways kind of created by and for Latinos. And then lastly, I think, you know, some kind of commitment. And for the companies that can afford to do so, some monetary commitment, whether it's a you know, contribution to a philanthropy, a partnership with an organization, a sweepstakes for the consumer. Um, but if you can't uh, commit dollars, then there's opportunities for other things, your products or services. So authenticity uh, and commitment in an ongoing way are, are kind of the keys to getting that right. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting that it spans two months, right? the, the, the mid-September mid to mid-October. So one of the things people say about Black History Month is it's the month of February, which is the shortest month of the year. So it's almost like shortchanged a bit. Um, is, is there a reason why it's – am I missing something obvious here? Why, or was that just uh, the way it felt? You mean the 915 to 1015? Yeah, yeah. What's yeah, the so significance of those particular days? Uh, I'm sure there is. There's a, a huge percentage of the independence days across Latin America fall within that four-week yeah. period, um, including Mexico, but a lot of different countries by total coincidence. So, you know, our, our equivalent of July 4th for many uh, it happens between September 15th and October 15th, hence the odd date. Got it, got it. I thought it'd be something like that. All right, Frank, tell us about a couple of interesting pieces of content went live at PRWeek.com this week. A nice profile of Craig Burkholz, who's a lead global communicator at General Motors, and Carrie Walsh, who's the chief marketing officer at Subway. Both very topical, and as always, we try and profile the most interesting uh, executives in uh, communications and marketing. What, 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 would, what caught your eye about those two pieces? Yeah, very topical indeed. Um, 
let's talk about Craig Volkholz first. Really big job uh, in what he is doing and what GM is doing. Uh, is setting the very ambitious goal to be carbon neutral by 2040. And that's that's huge in and of itself because, um, you know, that's less than two decades. Uh, and it's an automotive company and eliminating emissions from light duty cars and trucks by 2035. 50%, the goal is 50% of its portfolio consisting of electric vehicles by 2030. So in nine years, they want to have half of their portfolio be EVs. Um, there's a tremendous case to be made to the public about uh, the opportunity that, that comes with elect- electric vehicles. But I, I think they have to make the public much more comfortable uh, with EVs than they are right now. And that, that's a lot of different things, you know, whether it's convincing the public that the technology works and, and just sort of breaking them out of the comfort zone that they have uh, with, with, you know, uh, cars and trucks that run on gas. So GM plans to have 30 new electric uh, electric vehicles uh, up and down the pricing ladder by 2025. Again, very, very ambitious to roll out that many different types of cars and trucks uh, in just five years. It really um, is, isn't it? Those, it, those are groundbreaking yeah. targets. Like we've, we're kind of theming this, going back to our print routes, this is the uh, September, October issue, theming it around purpose. And those are genuine business targets that make a difference to the climate. So they're, those are real actions, aren't they? But they take some, going to take some, uh, some meeting. They are. And I think if you talk to people, uh, they have some concerns about how long it takes a, a car or truck to charge uh, and how long the battery lasts when you're on the road. And is it going to inconvenience them or is it going to be more yeah. expensive in various ways? Um, and, and that's, that's, where GM and their competitors, you know, where the communications departments are going to have to play a big role because they are going to have to get that message across to to consumers because, um, you know, the population at large is really comfortable with gas automobiles and, and trucks, but, you know, less comfortable with uh, with electric ones. And, um, and they are going to have to make the case that uh, if you buy an electric vehicle, it, it is not only going to be good for the environment and you're doing the right thing for the planet, but that it's you're not going to be inconvenienced by it. And yeah, that and that will need great, yeah. great communications and a really good narrative. Yeah. Same, yeah. same over at Subway because they've just done their biggest brand refresh ever. They have. And uh, there's a lot of talking about tuna in this feature um, <laughs> because um, – Subway was it was the pandemic, which of course is a huge challenge for everybody. Uh, in January, a lawsuit was filed in district court in California, alleging that Subway's tuna does not contain any tuna. And then a few months later, there was that New York Times story uh, based on a study that there there's no tuna DNA in Subway tuna sandwiches. Well, um, the CMO Kerry Walsh uh, of Subway wants you to know that yes, there is definitely tuna in the tuna at subway um and she also wants everybody to know about the the new mark um the new menu uh that has been rolling out across the chain um so again a lot of challenges in this job but not not the least of which uh has been defending the uh the bready ad starring tom brady that was out uh recently that, that had gotten some blowback on twitter i thought it was okay um yeah, it was kind of, I, they had a bit of fun with it, didn't they? It was like, yeah, yeah, this is an ad. You know, it was kind of a knowing ad, which 
but maybe it works because we write about the industry. But uh, they they kind of that was the way they reacted, and yeah, yeah. So, I was seeing around Megan Rapino as well, wasn't it? Right, right. And the one way they reacted to the the tuna issue was they they launched a microsite called SubwayTunaFacts.com, uh, which sort of you know lists everything from the science of how the tuna gets from the ocean to the menu and. Um, why some DNA testing uh, can be unreliable. So, so making their case and spelling it out in a really thorough way uh, w- with this site and also responding on social media. Uh, yeah. As you can imagine, they got trolled a bit for this. Yeah, but everyone's talking about Subway again. So, you know, it's, uh, it's good exposure. And uh, now we're back in the office. We've got a Subway, which is one of the closest restaurants to the, uh, the office. So uh, I, I did used to go and get my Subway sandwich occasionally. So maybe we should do the tuna test in the newsroom um, and uh, see what we think. Um, let's talk about another uh, quick service restaurant brand mcdonald's um their, their social listening tools were put under pressure to say the least when they came up against the k-pop sensations of bts tell us about it frank yeah this is uh this is really interesting because you know generationally uh i'm i'm not the audience uh for bts so it's really interesting to learn about not just how uh and we just did an analysis this week on on k-pop bands and um BTS in particular, and just how they, they drive enthusiasm across uh, their fan bases who are really active on social media uh, and, and tend to, you know, I don't want to call them pranks, but tend to be activists in some ways. I think that we, we remember how K-pop fans uh, bought all of those tickets to that Trump rally in Tulsa course, yeah. a, a year ago. And, and you know, they, they tend to be a little bit mischievous in, in, in a good cause. So, uh, yeah. it's interesting. Okay. So on the McDonald's one though, and there was the BTS meal with McDonald's. McDonald's has had success with this. You know, they've had, um, uh, Travis Scott do do a meal. They've had Jay Balvin do a meal, and and these the, these partnerships have worked well for for McDonald's. But for the BTS one, has been super successful for them. So much so, you you don't read about marketing campaigns a lot when you read about earnings in a, like a CNBC story. But in this case, you would because it was cited in driving so much traffic to the restaurant uh, in the second quarter. So in terms of the results. Uh, the BTS campaign generated more than 11 million mentions of the meal across primary social media platforms. Uh, on TikTok, the hashtag BTS meal and um, the dance challenge hashtag garnered 1.2 billion and, and 14.1 million views, respectively. And one, more than 187,000 videos were posted on TikTok with a hashtag related to the meal, which um, that's, that's a lot of activity related to to one campaign so um obviously a good choice by mcdonald's partnering with bts yes, and, and and you see the results here and it's um inarguable that, that this uh this has worked really well for them yeah and um, i'm sure they cost a lot to to uh, engage them but it's fantastic mike uh, this is your territory isn't it um and uh, this sort of social media activity is really evolving and is becoming the way to get to, especially to certain generations, Gen Z and millennials. Yeah, I thought it was masterful. So, you know, it's, it's uh, rare that a great concept is also perfectly executed. Uh, sometimes you'll come up with a, a crazy big idea, but then it falls apart or the execution is, is competent, but there wasn't a lot of breakthrough thinking. And I think they really nailed both here. 
from selecting the right uh, celebrity partner that is extremely, um, I guess, global, for lack of a better word, just like McDonald's. And then uh, with the, the way they went about it, from a teaser to then the ultimate payoff where they're informing what they were teasing about, and then another phase when the meal itself dropped. Um, so I'm not surprised it did so well. Yeah, it's good stuff. And uh, it wouldn't be a podcast without us talking about the latest social media uh, activity. So, Mike, it's been great to chat to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Really enjoyed chatting. Feelings mutual. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, and thanks, Frank. I'll see you shortly in the office. It's got yeah, to get used right to it down again. the hall. Yeah, exactly. Um, don't forget our Purpose Awards. They're on the 13th of October in person in New York City. So come and let's meet up. Let us say hello to each other after this long hiatus. PR, it's part of PR Decoded, which still will be virtual. That's from October the 12th to the 14th. And uh, the Hall of Fame, Fame event I mentioned is on the 30th of um, November. Um, and uh, we're very much hoping that will be in person. And don't forget the PR Week Awards. The standard deadline is the 29th of September, so you've got uh, just under a couple of weeks to get your work in. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.